it had been years of silence. And things had not ended the way it was supposed to end. There was a lot of frustration. There was a lot of hurt. There was a lot of unknown. Most had lost hope. Some had immersed themselves in the old stories, but it wasn't the same. It wasn't the same of having something new and fresh. And then the silence was broken. I'm talking, of course, of Gilmore Girls. <laughs> I am a huge Gilmore Girls fan from the very first episode, however many years ago, until it went off the air, which was tragic. Because for those of you who are fans like I am, you know that that last year, the original creators and writers had left the show because the new station at the time, CW or whatever that thing is, had just royally messed things up. And it didn't end the way it was supposed to end. The original writer came out and said, from the first time I started that show, I knew the final words. I knew how I was going to end it. And now we would never know. We wouldn't know because she wasn't telling us. She didn't say, here's how I would have ended it if I was still there. And for years, we lived in frustration. Would we ever know? And then, I don't remember when it was, maybe about a year ago, I saw something on Facebook that gave me hope. Netflix was filming new episodes of the Gilmore Girls. And it was the original writer. This was so exciting. There was just massive anticipation. We knew nothing. We just knew they were coming back. They had the original people, or at least most of them. We didn't know when it was going to be. We didn't know what it was going to look like. We didn't know how many episodes it was going to be. But they were coming back, and we would finally know what the final words were always meant to be. I think this is kind of like the Jews. <laughs> Maybe a little bit. Maybe it was a little bit more serious. <laughs> but for the Jews, this is how things had ended. They had come out of the exile. They were back in their land. They had rebuilt the temple. And expectations were... God would fill this temple in the same way he did in Solomon's day. That they would have that glorious presence again in Israel. Instead, this is what they got. If you will turn with me, I passed it, to Malachi. I cast it again. It's a very short book. It is the very last book of the Old Testament. The final episode, the season finale of the Old Testament. Chapter 4. This is thing, how things ended for them. For behold, the day is coming. It's not now. It's coming. Burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, 
says the Lord of hosts. Remember, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statues and rules that I commanded him. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. It's a very hopeful message. Very hopeful final word. And then 430 years of silence. Of nothing. Of having no idea what God was doing how he was acting, when he was going to act, and maybe some of them, if he was going to act, nothing. I've been thinking a lot about that silence, that silence that we feel when we don't know what God is doing. And the silence that they must have felt, not on some big theological level, but just these individuals barely scraping by who are basically living as serfs on their own land, paying these overbearing taxes to foreigners. A father who's just wondering, how am I going to provide for my kids when this, with this kind of life? A mother who is wondering, is this country going to be safe for my children? Leaders who are just trying to do the right thing. What can we do so we can make sure that we are the, this, we are the righteous, that will be lifted up and not the wicked? What can we do to make sure that our hearts are turned the way they're supposed to be turned so we're not struck with a decree of utter destruction? We just want to do the right thing, and we don't know what that right thing is. And there's just silence. And so I imagine when Gabriel came to Zechariah and then to Mary, when an angel came to Joseph, what that anticipation was that it's coming. He really is working. Turn one page if you were in Malachi. 430 years with a flip of a page to Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, and Jason explained how betrothal in those days was a lot more serious than engagement. It was basically a wedding vow. They just weren't together yet. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, and I just need to pause right here because Jason and I have a disagreement on translations. Jason says he doesn't think there are any good English words for behold. I disagree. Hear me out. But as he considered these things, avast me, hearties! An angel of the Lord. Now, come on. Doesn't that both draw attention to the phrase, break the text, and let you know something important is coming? Clearly, Jason has just not participated in National Talk Like a Pirate Day. 
But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Now, I want you to notice right there how many times in this just short couple of verses we have had divine intervention. When his mother Mary had been betrothed, she came to be found with a child from the Holy Spirit. And as he considered these things, Joseph has a dream from the Lord, an angel of the Lord. And he says, this angel is going to say, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Matthew is emphasizing, and that angel was emphasizing to Joseph, the silence is broken. This is divine intervention. This is God coming. This is God working. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is um, a Greek version, and the Hebrew version is Yeshua or Joshua. And the people would have remembered another very key figure in their history named Joshua. A man, a leader, who raised up in another time of silence in the wilderness. And another time of following disobedience when they were prevented from moving on to the place where they should have been. And after that time was up, a man named Joshua took them from their time of silence into the promised land. That's what they would have been thinking when they heard this name, Joshua. A savior who takes them from where they shouldn't be to a place of where they should be. And it says his name shall be Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, you and I, when we read that, what we hear is he will die on the cross and die for our sins, a universal, universal and personal cleansing of our sins. And while that is part of Jesus's work, that's not what they would have heard right here. See, for the Israelites at the time, this idea of sin spoke specifically to the disobedience, their unfaithfulness to God that had gotten them stuck in the exile in the first place. And though after 70 years had passed from them being apart from the land, when they came back, it turned out the time of their exile was not actually over. That they were still stuck. And I think we've had times like that in our lives where we think this next thing is going to fix everything. And we get there, and we are still stuck. We are still confused. It turned out that next, when this happened, when this happens, didn't really solve anything. And that's exactly where the Israelites were. Things had not been solved for them yet. The foreigner was still in the land. They were, the foreigner was still in charge of them. And the temple had not been filled. So when they hear that Jesus will save you for your, from your sins, what they're really hearing is Jesus is going to end this exile. Jesus is going to be that anointed 
Davidic king who is going to raise us up and make Israel great again. He's going to be the one who finally brings an end to all that shouldn't be. You see, Israel had kind of been in timeout for a bit after all of their unfaithfulness. And God had had enough, and he put them in timeout. And their time of timeout was finished. That's what they're hearing. A few days ago, and really, for me, a few days ago, could mean a few days ago, could mean six years ago, but I've lost all sense of time. And a few days ago, I realized as I was cooking that the house was unusually peaceful and quiet. And it had been for a bit. Children seemed to be playing contentedly, quietly. And then I'd realized that I had forgotten that my older son was in timeout. And had probably been in there for about 10 or 15 minutes. And that's why the house was so quiet. God did not forget Israel in timeout. He does not forget his people. He does not turn his back on his people. Because even though Israel had been unfaithful, even though they had been disobedient, even though they had failed to do their job and to live out their purpose of being a kingdom of priests to the nation, God is faithful. And he had not forgotten them. And he had not forgotten his promise that he was going to not just make them great, but save the world through them. Jesus is the culmination of all of this promise. Jesus is what is going to make it possible for God to fulfill his promise in Israel, even though Israel had been completely unfaithful and not up to the job. God wasn't sitting back there waiting, okay, Israel, when you get your act together, then we can move on. Then you can come out of timeout. We can figure out our next steps. We can talk about your behavior. That's not what God was up there doing. He had a plan to both save Israel and to fulfill his promise to save and redeem the world. And part of that is his presence. The culmination, not just part of it, the essence of it is his presence back in the world. And so this idea of Jesus saving them from their sins, it's just a part of the plan. Matthew goes on to comment about this whole thing in verse 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, here's the very odd thing about this verse. This really wasn't one of the passages that the Jews were constantly looking to as prophecy. 
In that 430 years, when they are pacing back and forth and going back and back and back to these scrolls, and these scrolls are just in tatters, they're just figuring out what is God's plan, and they're going to Isaiah and to Jeremiah and to Ezekiel and to Daniel and looking at all these prophecies and trying to figure out what did we miss, what are we doing wrong, what is God doing, I don't understand what's going on. This passage was probably not one that they kept going back to for that purpose. It comes from Isaiah 7, and it's in the middle of this story. And in this story, Ahaz, the king of Judah, is very concerned because some of Judah's enemies were joining forces. And he was very concerned that these forces are going to come in and wipe out Judah, and that would be the end. And into this, Isaiah is sent by the Lord to give Ahaz a prophecy. God will stand with you. You will not be destroyed at this time by those enemies. You can be assured of that. And to make sure that Ahaz would understand this, he gave him a sign. That a young virgin, somebody who was at the time not married, would have a son named Emmanuel. And you would know that God stands with you. Now what this probably meant is that she at the time was not married. She would go through the betrothal process, she would get married, she would become pregnant, and she would have a son and name him Emmanuel. And at about the time of two years, those enemies did disperse and were destroyed. And Israel didn't have to worry about them, or Judah didn't have to worry about them. So this prophecy was already fulfilled. It wasn't something they expected of the Messiah But here's what that story did. It resonated in them. You know, like when you read a novel or watch a movie that you just feel resonates with you, that you feel is part of you. It it claims some truth about you. Matthew is bringing this up to say, this is part of your story. This is who you are. And it does three things. First, it reminds the people God stands with you. Always and forever, God stands with his people. He fights his enemies. He is there. He is not absent. He is working. It does another thing, too. It lets the people know that this specific figure, Jesus, is just, it's not some plan B outside thing over here. It's part of what God's been doing all along. Because this little verse that you thought was only this thing over here that's finished and done with, there's actually something bigger about it going on. Something you, you didn't understand before. Something you didn't know at the time. But God had a plan and was working. And Jesus is part of that plan. And it does a third thing, I think. It helps them realize that God works in unexpected ways. They weren't really expecting a virgin birth for their, for their Messiah. That's not something they had really thought of. They weren't sitting there going, okay, when, when a virgin gives birth, that's how we'll know that it's the Davidic Messiah. But that's something God had. He works in completely unexpected And yes, weird ways. Who would have ever thought that that would be part of the plan? 
God works in very unexpected and weird ways. I have heard the God with us sermon so many times. I have tried to wrap my mind around the idea of God who created this earth, who created the galaxy, who created all of the ants and the beetles, who puts into place kingdoms and nations and presidents, became a baby. The Jews were expecting this glorious filling of the temple, this huge, big Times Square New Year's Eve moment with celebration and music and dancing and tambourines and just this huge, big thing like it was in Solomon's day. But for God, it was more than that. Because God didn't want to just go back to Solomon's day. He wanted to go back to something essential that we had at creation. He didn't want to just fill a room in a temple. He wanted to fill his entire creation. He didn't want to just have human contact with one priest once a year. He wanted to walk and talk with us daily, personally, intimately, like he did in creation. And that's why he worked in this very unexpected way of sending Jesus. Jesus was not just the Davidic king that the people were expecting. Jesus is the temple of God. He is the fulfillment of God with us on earth, walking and talking and hanging out with us. God didn't just wave a magic wand and make everything okay again and give the right ending and then stand back in his heavens and look down upon us. He saw our broken and vulnerable and hurt reality. And Yahweh became part of that. He stepped into the broken and vulnerable and hurt reality. He became a baby, a human baby, God swimming in the amniotic fluid, God breastfeeding, God spitting up and pooping and burping. And for 33 years, he walked in flesh. He didn't just come in some flash of lightning and fix everything. He wanted so much to be with us, to understand, to feel, to experience our lives so that he could be with us in everything. And he experienced physical pain and suffering. He experienced 
betrayal by friends. He experienced abandonment and feeling completely alone. He experienced just complete tired and worn out, and I can't even keep my eyes open for another minute. He experienced hunger. He experienced that feeling of somebody very close to you, whom you love, rejecting God and destroying their lives. All of these things that we feel and experience, we have a God who experiences that and feels that with us. Emmanuel wasn't what they expected of this big, glorious moment. It was something much more intimate and much more personal and much harder to grasp. We could understand if God just boom. But how do we understand a screaming baby? How do we understand potty training God? How do we understand an adolescent God? God wants us to know him. And that in itself blows my mind. That the one who created me and then I rejected him. Because I know sometimes when others reject me, I just kind of want to go, fine, I'm done. But that's not what God did. He kept coming, and he wants to know us so much, and he wants us to know him that he came in vulnerability and in brokenness. And we look in verse 24 at Joseph's response. When Joseph woke from sleep, He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph wakes up, and he immediately, and without any hesitation, without any, what's the right thing to do here? He does it. He immediately rearranges his complete life. Everything, he takes on Mary's shame and dishonor. And he does what is necessary, what God calls him to do. And here's the thing about Joseph. We really don't know much about him. We know that he did this very heroic thing, but we don't really have a heroic story about him. We know that he immediately took on all of Mary's pain and shame and dishonor as his own when he didn't have to. We know that that he did what God said to do. And what this most likely meant is he was rejected from the community and by the community, that he lost their respect, that there was always these whispers behind his back And he willingly walked into that, knowing full well everything that was coming. We know that he heard from God 
one another time when God told him to flee as a refugee. And then we know that he heard from God a couple years later when he said it's safe to come back to Israel. We know a few years later after that, when Jesus was 12, that he lost Jesus, which is, you know, pretty much every parent's nightmare. And then that's it. Presumably he died before Jesus went into public ministry. Did he ever hear from God again? We don't know. Was he ever accepted back into the community? We don't know. Was his business as a carpenter successful or was he always struggling to make ends meet because the community really didn't want to get buy stuff from this shameful guy? Did he ever regain any respect? We don't know. And since he probably died before Jesus went into public ministry, did he even get the fulfillment of seeing his sacrifice, something that was worth it? He didn't get any of that. It's not a very good hero story. It's a little too silent. There's no closure. There's no ending there. There's no big moment when at least the hero gets to see that it was all worth it. And that's the model that we are called into. This whole Kingdom First series has been about how do we live our lives kingdom first? How do we reprioritize everything? We are not called into an ambition first, a, um, a self-expression first, or a self-gratification first. We are called into a kingdom first life. And so often what this means is faithfulness in the midst of silence, in the midst of complete unknown. We don't know what's going on. We don't really know what God is doing with us of just walking one step at a time, faithfully following what God has called us to do. Are we doing the right thing? Is this what I should be doing? Does God see me? Does he see this pain? Does he see what I have to go through? We go through this and we may not ever come at the, other, at the end of our life and say, ah, that's what it was about. We may not. But we don't do it alone. And that is the heart of God with us. We are not waiting any longer for God to come fill his temple. We are not waiting any longer for Emmanuel because we have Emmanuel. Because we do walk with God every day. We may be waiting for him to finish some of the external part of his work. We may be waiting for the rest of the world to see this Christ. But in the person of the Holy Spirit, we have Christ every day. And we have a Christ who sees and experiences and knows every single thing that we are going through. Who understands the pain of loss, whether it's job loss, friendship loss, parental loss, rejection, death. He knows it. He's seen it. He's experienced it. 
and he is walking with us. Living a kingdom first life is not about getting it all right so that God will use you. It's not about having the perfect Pinterest board. It's not about being able to do all these projects just right. Have you guys ever seen the nailed it things? That is every project I try. It's where you see this on Pinterest and it's like three easy steps. You make this, da, 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 da. And it's a five minute project with your kids. Clearly these people are not doing it with their kids, first of all. And they're paying somebody else to do it. Because when I try it, the simple popsicle frame is just a disaster with glue stringing from the ceiling and I don't even know what's going on. This is how I feel like this is my Christian life and I'm trying to just get it right. But that's not how we walk our kingdom first life. We walk it with God every day with this God with us because silence, even when we feel silence, and let me tell you, every Christian at some point will feel God's silence, will wonder Am I doing the right thing? Does he see me? Silence does not mean absence. God is with us. Always and forever, God is with his chosen people. Um, I, here's the point where what I really want to do is give you this amazing, magnificent story of a missionary or some influential theologian or some great hero of the faith who went through one of these very silent, hard times and endured it and came to the other end and said, ta-da, this is what it was all about. That's what I want to do. And truthfully, there are stories like that. There are stories of people who endured and either they saw the outcome or later we saw the outcome and it was amazing. And we need to read those stories. We need to be reminded that we're not alone, that others do struggle with this. But I am not going to give you one of those stories right now. Instead, I want to read to you an excerpt from an article that a missionary in the Middle East wrote. More Christians are killed than are saved from execution at the last minute. More Christians stay locked in prison, beaten and tortured, than are able to walk free, guided by miraculous escape plans. More Christians suffer lifelong deprivation of their most basic civic and economic rights. More converts from Islam give up their faith than stay Christian. And those who remain in the church struggle with lifelong battles with shame, depression, and isolation caused by the loss of ties to their families, communities, and nations. That's the reality. That's a really uplifting Advent message. <laughs> but this is also the reality. Our king knows this. Our king is walking with us. Our king 
is not just sitting on Mount Olympus somewhere, in some palace somewhere, while we, the serfs, are working down here. Our king experienced it and is with us even now. Our king knows all the pain, all of the suffering, all of the heartache, and he cares for us. The end of the story is not where we would like it to be. I want nice little short stories. Here's my struggle, and two weeks later, here's the ending. And then, you know, we enjoy a nice time of comfort. Here's my struggle. I go through it. Here's the ending. The end of the story is when the world sees Christ and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and he will wipe away every tear. And we live somewhere in the middle of that. But Christ is with us. Let's pray. God, help us to remember that no matter what, no matter where we are, no matter what our pain and struggle is, you know that pain and struggle. You have felt it. You have experienced it. You are walking with us. You care more for us than to just wave a magic wand and make everything right. You care enough to sit with us and to hold us and to comfort us. I pray that we will find comfort in you in the times of hardness and struggle and that we will look to the joy and the hope of the day that the world sees you as king. Pray these things in your son's name, amen.